Everything is a system. Your employer, your relationships, your family and friends, and even your sports teams. America football, the NFL, is a system of 32 teams. There are rules for how many players each team can have, how much each team can spend, and how each team can arrange contracts. There are rules for the players, like what substances they can't consume and what they can and can't do on the field. That field has set dimensions and arbiters called referees. The system has implicit rules like how hard to work and what it means to be tough. There are rules for sponsorships too, explicit ones in the contract and implicit ones we call norms. The player has sponsors and is on a team in a league that exists in a country on planet Earth. That's a sketch of the concentric circle model of the system we call the NFL. Being a member of a system affects behaviors, and we are all members of systems. Riding a bicycle is another system. There's the bike, the pedal power, and the force of gravity. There may also be wind. When the wind is at your back, it doesn't feel like anything because you're moving with the forces of the system, in this case the weather. It's only once we change our point of view, only once we change directions, when we turn around, that we see the system in real terms. This is what's happening with women in tech. Women are dealing with it, and men have no idea what's going on. In an interview with Maya Ibrahim, Kara Swisher and her talked about how the men just don't know what's going on. This is a clip of Kara Swisher. Every woman had a story, and every good man was surprised. Those were, that's, you know, and I'm saying, you know what I mean? Like, I had no idea. And the same thing was iterated with Uber, mm-hmm. with Justin Callback, with Dave uh, McClure. Yeah. I'm so surprised. I had no idea, Kara. I'm like, why did you have no idea? Yeah. It's like when there's a stiff breeze and two groups are riding in opposite directions. It's part of the system. In her interview with Guy Raz, Rent the Runway founder Jen Hyman talked about her experiences and noted that certain mindsets may be ingrained. I've now come to understand that a lot of how deals get done and how companies, let's say, get acquired is someone is saying something like, oh, you should really meet this guy. He's a visionary. Hmm. He's incredible. You should get to know him. And I think across the board, more of those comments are being made about male entrepreneurs than they are about female entrepreneurs. We as a society feel uncomfortable using the words visionary or brilliant to describe women. (laughs) That's not always intentional. I think it's just ingrained in people. In that same interview, Hyman talked about the way this manifests itself when venture capitalists tell female entrepreneurs they need to run something by their spouse or their daughter or their administrative assistant. Alexis Horowitz told Kay He why that's a terrible excuse. Well, I'll tell you my one that I told you last time, which is like my favorite example. So when I was going through various different fundraising rounds for Luxola, you know, I'd be in the room with investors from the U.S., from Japan, from China, you know, all over the place, right? We had investors from all over the globe. And, oh, are we very skeptical about solo founders? I always wonder if they're skeptical about male solo founders. Like, I don't think so. So, like, don't ask that question. But the other one that I would always get asked and it would drive me up the wall was not get asked, but they would, the meeting would end and it would always end like this. 
Well, this is great, Alexis. You know, I mean, it's it's a good it's a good idea. But you know, let me let me take this home. I want to talk to my wife. I want to run by run it by her. I want to see if she'd be a user. You know, I, I really value, I value her opinion. You know, let me see if she would use this. What? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Do you ask your wife about like every other deal that comes by your desk? No, you don't. So each of these women point out the unseen headwinds for women in technology. Football fans know this too, and it's part of the vigorous end-of-year debate. Is a team that goes undefeated with a weaker schedule better than a team that loses a few games with a better schedule? But the point of this episode isn't about football or gender and technology. It's about cities. Cities are a system. Where we live is one of the tightest concentric circles around each of us. And according to Charles Montgomery in his book Happy City, we've made some terrible choices. Montgomery calls the sprawl the urban blast radius and looks at why the sprawl may be bad. He wonders why, if GDP has increased and technology has advanced, have people not gotten proportionally happy? Why are we longing? Montgomery thinks we're living wrong. He thinks that this concentric circle is more like a noose. In patients hooked up to fMRI machines, researchers found that the thing that excited them most was sex, of course. After that, it was relationships with other people. At the very end of the list, the thing that people liked least of all was commuting, and we're doing more of it every year. The average American's one-way commute increased to 26.4 miles in 2015. That's data from the Washington Post. Commutes have increased because we're living further from work, and work is spreading out. Our cities are growing like teenagers, and we're having similar growing pains. A Brookings report found that the number of jobs within a typical commute distance fell by 7% over the last decade. Christopher Ingraham gave a, gave a summary of these effects in the Washington Post. Quote, There's a massive body of social science and public health research on the negative effects of commuting on personal and societal well-being. Longer commutes are linked with increased rates of obesity, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, back and neck pain, divorce, depression, and death. At the societal level, people who commute are less likely to vote. They're more likely to be absent from work and less likely to escape poverty. They have kids who are more likely to have emotional problems, end quote. What the heck? How did we get here? Why do we do a thing that makes us so unhappy? Our cities have evolved, and there are two driving forces that got us to this point in time, wrote Montgomery, space and speed. These are the forces that spawned influences like zoning, federal-backed mortgages, racism, culture, jaywalking laws, marketing for cars and vehicles, technocrats, and the Federal Highways Act. The History Channel reports in an article titled The Epic Road Trip That Inspired the Interstate Highway System that the mental groundbreaking for highways happened in 1919. That was the year Dwight Eisenhower got in a Jeep for a cross-country trip. From the History Channel, quote, Eisenhower was in a funk. With his wife and infant son living 1,500 miles away in Denver, the 28-year-old lieutenant colonel stationed at Maryland's Camp Meade wasted away his considerable boredom by playing bridge with his fellow soldiers and drowning his sorrows about being kept stateside during World War I. You see, the military needed volunteers for an 81-vehicle cross-country convoy from Maryland to San Francisco 
again from the History Channel, quote, The War Department viewed this cost country caravan undertaken just months after the end of World War I as part victory lap, part publicity stunt. Prodded by automakers, gasoline companies, and tire manufacturers, the military saw the convoy as a way to both test the capabilities of the Army's Motor Transport Corps and highlight the poor state of America's roads. After seven hours driving on the first day, Eisenhower broke for camp, 46 miles from where they began. Their pace? Just over six miles an hour. It would only get worse as vehicles stopped and got stuck. Their top speed on the trip was 10 miles per hour on the paved California asphalt. Fast forward to his time as Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in World War II. Eisenhower wrote, quote, After seeing the autobahns of modern Germany and knowing the asset those highways were to the Germans, I decided as president to put an emphasis on this kind of road building. The old convoy had started me thinking about good two-lane highways, but Germany had made me see the wisdom of broader ribbons across the land, end quote. Germany had the Autobahn because Hitler loved cars. Cars were his tool of propaganda. If every German could own a car and Hitler could provide the roads, it would be the sustaining support he needed. In her book, Thinking Small About the Volkswagen Beetle, author Andrea Hyatt wrote, quote, Thus, in May of 1938, Adolf Hitler christened Wolfburg the town of strength through joy car. The town of the Volkswagen. Volkswagen was a generic term being used in technical and automotive circles at the time to mean a car for the common man, something still thought impractical and impossible in Germany by most. The idea of a Volkswagen carried a lot of power. To speak of motorizing the population was to speak of giving people more control over their lives, an idea that evoked both awe and desire. As one German automotive writer named Winifred Bade proclaimed in 1938, Until now the automobile has conquered the world. Now begins the true possession of the automobile by the people. The dream of the car and the dream of the city being built for it went hand in hand. Each spoke to the masses, each served as a symbol of unification, and each was directly linked to the strengthening of the nation through industry, all major aspects of the Nazi conception of power that was taking hold of the country then." Back stateside, in 1956, we get the Federal Aid Highway Act, which established $25 billion for 41,000 miles of roads. That's enough roads to do the New York to Miami to San Diego to Seattle to Chicago to Boston loop five times. These were the systems that influenced us. One growth out of this has been fast food. Ray Kroc started selling McDonald's franchises one year before the act. and an out burger was created a few years before that, right next to a highway exit. Cars, burgers, and shakes and dates became a part of Americana. That's how we got to now. It's like in Back to the Future, where Doc explains to Marty how some actions lead to one future and another set of actions leads to another. Imagine that this line represents time. Here's the present, 1985, the future, and the past. Prior to this point in time, somewhere in the past, the timeline skewed into this tangent, creating an alternate 1985. Alternate to you, me, and Einstein, but reality for everyone else. 
In one of my favorite books of 2017, The Evolution of Everything, Matt Ridley makes the case that emergence is the defining force of religion, technology, culture, cities, mind, personality, and more. Ridley's premise is that much of the order that we see comes from bottom-up organization. It's individuals reacting to the rules of the system. This is why we get what venture capitalist Mark Andreessen calls the volcano movie problem. Ideas come in waves because we have individuals operating in the same system. Ridley explains, quote, Just as the light bulb was ripe for discovery in 1870, so the search engine was ripe for discovery in 1990. By the time Google came along in 1996, there were already lots of search engines. Archie, Veronica, Excite, InfoSeek, AltaVista, Galaxy, Webcrawler, Yahoo, Lycos, LookSmart, to name just the most prominent. Perhaps none was at the time as good as Google, but they would have got better. Ridley goes on, This phenomenon is so common that it must be telling us something about the inevitability of invention. As Kevin Kelly documents in his book, What Technology Wants, we know of six different inventors of the thermometer, three of the hypodermic needle, four of vaccination, four of decimal fractions, five of the electric telegraph, four of photography, three of logarithms, five of the steamboat, six of the electric railroad. This is either redundancy on a grand scale or a mighty coincidence. And this goes on to articulate Ridley's point in the book, is that things will emerge based on the rules of the system. And this is how we got to now. Rules were set forth and the ecosystem sprouted. In this case, the rules via zoning and attitudes favored the ideas of cars. But we can imagine an alternative future. We can imagine a different reality, just like in Back to the Future. If other rules had been in place, then other outcomes would have come. In Montgomery's book, Happy City, this evolution has been less than desirable. As Ingraham from the Washington Post wrote, things ain't so great. Why is it we die from heart disease, but perpetuate the conditions by sitting and eating in our car? Well, maybe it has been worth it. People had to leave the city to escape crime, right? Montgomery suggests we traded murder for vehicular manslaughter. Streets may have expanded with communities to allow for on-street parking and the safe passage of emergency vehicles. But that means more ground for each fire department to cover. There are more stations to staff, more trucks to drive. It's a trade-off inherent in this part of the system. Density changes this, argues Montgomery. Maybe things are better when people are closer. With proximity, people walk. The sweet spot is 5 to 10 minutes. Density also helps in the same way that buying bulk goods at Costco is a better deal. Beyond services like firefighters, more people support more things like libraries, gyms, schools, and specialty restaurants. This doesn't mean packing people in. It means, like most things in life, a good balance. Montgomery says we should adopt the Edward O. Wilson idea of biophilia, our preference for the natural. But not to confuse this for a deluge. We like nature in moderation. Metro parks are great. Wildernesses are not. Some is good, and more isn't necessarily better. Many small distributed parks have a greater return on investment than one big part, writes Montgomery. In addition to a balance of nature, there should be a balance of spaces. People like environments where they can slide from the public to the private. One of the most valuable brands in the world built their business off this idea. Starbucks. The coffee chain capitalized on being a third space. Both home and work are mostly private spaces. Starbucks and coffee shops like it are more public. 
fully public places like parks are important too. What's key, writes Montgomery, is that people need the opportunity to go from one place to another. They need the opportunity to be in nature and then not. These ideas, these places allow for relationships, and we have this appeal to nature. Density allows for more of these kinds of connections. Many things influence us toward car culture. It will take similar nudges, similar rules, maybe larger ones, to nudge us back. Parking lots nudge people to drive. Sidewalks nudge people to walk. And people only like to do one of these things. As I've been told, we were born this way. We've evolved to be around people. We've evolved to be around nature. And we've evolved to walk. We were not evolved to thrive in the 21st century. Our biology drives behavior and it's heading off the tracks. Addictions abound from cocaine to sugar to pornography. We need some guardrails. Good solutions reduce or increase friction for a behavior. The easier something is to do, the more of it will be done. Think about the foods you eat, the things you read. Let's get meta about this podcast even. Thanks to technology, this was delivered to you automatically. It showed up in your feed. Maybe it was even automatically advanced to you as you finished an episode of something else. Someone is reading a script to you. If this had been a 5,000 word blog post, would you have read it? We consume the convenient and calculations are not. What's the opportunity cost of driving? What are we not doing because we're driving? Cars are expensive. Cars cost 50 cents a mile to drive, and that's for the median. Spatially, we've devoted enough room for eight parking spots per car in the United States right now. Commutes are an hour a day. You're not getting that back. There's also the health effects like obesity, back pain, and depression. Psychologist Dan Ariely has researched opportunity costs, and he found that we are terrible at computing them. At a Honda dealership, he has potential buyers what else they might get with their money. They told him maybe a Toyota. What Ariely was curious about, though, was why people didn't list other things like saving more for retirement or going on a vacation. He found that people think best when things are clear and concrete. In another experiment, Ariely asked people if they wanted to buy a Pioneer stereo for $1,000 or a Sony for $700. The people overwhelmingly chose the Pioneer stereo. Then with another group, he asked if they would prefer a Pioneer stereo for the same $1,000 or a Sony for $1,000, but with $300 of credit for music and movies at the store. Their preferences switched. Ariella's research has led him to believe that the explanation is articulation. Clear and obvious costs are more likely accounted for. In driving, we see this at the pump. It stinks to pay for gas. That's a clear and obvious cost for us. In their book, Nudge, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler point out that we may as well think about this because nothing starts from nothing. Everything has some design to it, and maybe we can design behaviors that better reflect all the costs. Sunstein and Thaler want people to consider starting from a well-chosen place. They write, quote, A choice architect has a responsibility for organizing the context in which people make decisions. And many real people turn out to be choice architects, mostly without realizing it. If you design the ballot voters use to choose candidates, you are a choice architect. If you are a doctor and must describe the alternative treatments available to a patient, you are a choice architect. If you design the form that new employees fill out to enroll in the company health care plan, 
you are a choice architect. If you are a parent describing possible educational options to your son or daughter, you are a choice architect. If you are a salesperson, you are a choice architect. But you already knew that. There are many parallels between choice architecture and more traditional forms of architecture. A crucial parallel is that there is no such thing as a neutral design. End quote. As free as we consider ourselves to be, design bumps us one way or another. Going back to Dan Ariely, this is some advice he gave to Lifehacker. Quote, I believe in design. One of the major lessons from social science is that we make decisions based on the environment that we are in. This means that given a particular environment, we have less free will than we would hope. But it also means that if we take design seriously, we can design the world in a way that is more compatible with our skills and more likely to lead to better decisions. Every day I see many examples of human stupidity, but I have hope because of our free will and the design of the world we live in. And if we understand human behavior better and use this as a guiding principle for design, we can do much, much better." End quote. Environments influence how we live, act, and think. Of course, environments influence me too. Reading, writing, researching, and recording all this has brought to light my own biases. I believe in Montgomery. I believe in Mr. Money Mustache, who also really liked this book. I believe Gary Hack at the University of Pennsylvania, who teaches an architecture class about the design of cities. I also like riding my bike. All this research seems so obvious. I feel like the man in the New Yorker cartoon who, when his wife asks him when he's coming to bed, he says he can't because he needs to correct someone on the internet. This is also obvious, which means it's not. In a wonderful podcast with Shane Parrish, Adam Grant talked about his research. He demonstrated an honest humility when he said, quote, If you can't find any data to contradict your point of view, you haven't looked hard enough, end quote. In the social sciences where Grant works, where theories of cities live, there are no universals. Things are situationally dependent. That I can't argue the other side, argue against Montgomery and Mr. Money Mustache and Hack, means I don't know this well enough. As Charles Munger said, quote, I never allow myself to have an opinion on anything that I don't know the other side's argument better than they do, end quote. But here's what I do know. The history of a system diagrams the rules, and the rules influence our actions. These can be small or they can be large, but they are omnipresent. Rules guide growth, from biology and what plants will grow where to government zoning for what buildings get built. We can change the rules with either energy, money, or time. More of any of those will accelerate the process. We all exist in a system. We all have some power to change our systems. What we need to do is recognize the systems we're in. Recognize headwinds and tailwinds and explicit and implicit rules and decide if those are the rules of the system that we want to have. Thanks for listening.